Welcome to A Life Invested, a podcast dedicated to helping you create the lifestyle of your dreams by investing in people, assets, and yourself. I'm your host, Roger Comstock. All right, my friends, welcome. Welcome back to A Life Invested. I'm so grateful to have each and every one of you here. Um, super thankful to have uh, this individual on the show today that we have the privilege of listening to as our guest and for y'all to be able to learn from. Um, this is John Ivy, and John Ivy is a revenue architect helping early to late stage startups get from growth to scale and raise capital consciously. Super cool guy. I've known John and his sweetheart for a really long time, and they've they've built some uh, really really cool kind of systems with their business. Uh, John has been in sales and marketing for the better part of twenty years, and has coached leaders, teams, and executives to grow hundreds of millions of dollars and disrupt markets all across the globe. Really, really exciting what you've been able to to do, John. So welcome, welcome to the show, man. So grateful to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. It sounds that bio sounds a lot better than like the real life that I remember. Ah, dude, I years. Don't know. It, the thing is, dude, you you are yeah. just as cool as the bio makes you sound. You're such a such a legend, man. Honestly, it's a privilege to know you. I'm grateful to to have uh, listeners be be able to learn from you, my friend. Tell tell the listeners wow. if they're wanting to learn a little bit more about you and Ivy League and what you're up to. Where's the best place for them to go in order to follow along? Uh, LinkedIn's probably the best place. Yeah. Like I'm bad. I'm bad at my own job for my company. So our website is still like mostly in Latin and uh, you know what I mean? So it's just a place to park the domain, go to our, go to the, go to my LinkedIn page. It's where everything happens. That's where we post most of our content. So cool. Yeah. And that's really good advice, honestly, for all listeners anyway, generally um, we're, we're so used to utilizing uh, outlets like Instagram and Facebook um, and, and some Twitter or X, right. Um, but LinkedIn has grown, uh, big time over the past couple of years. And so it's a great, great place to start building, um, your own following too. So get to know John there. That's where he posts most of his content where you can follow along with him, but also, yeah, start building your own kind of content machine there. It's a great, great place to be. Um, t- tell us kind of what you're all about and why you ended up building Ivy league and what you're currently doing. Cool. So yes, uh, you got from the bio, I've been in sales and marketing for years and years and uh, started out in finance, raising money for private equity and hedge funds and a tech fund of all things. And I guess before that, I was working for a tech company as a BDR while I was in college. We uh, went to Westminster, got into finance, found that finance was kind of boring and I'm like a creative and, you know, like marketing is creative strategy. Like it's fun. And when you do that in finance, it's called a compliance violation because you can't have any fun and you can't be creative and, and market things as, as you would like to. So uh, anyway, I, I started working as an operator within some of the tech firms that we saw as a, as a sort of venture capital fundraising entity and decided I just wanted to be an operator and bring my, my skills and talents to people who are great product and and market leaders, like they understand their market and their product really well. They understand who they're, who they're, the problems they're trying to solve, but they're not necessarily really skilled at growth and the marketing side. I, I always say you can you can outsell and outmarket a bad product, but the greatest product in the world still will fail to sell itself nine times out of ten. Now there are those right. There's stuff that catches fire and people, but even then, it's usually some. Uh, promoter, somebody who gets a hold of it early, some early adopter who advocates, and and it's it is sales just by another name. 
but most of the time there I've seen so many great things that just get, they don't get their funding. The, you know, the owners go away. They're, they're unable to, to raise or to keep their doors open. It's so many cool disruptive things just go the way of the, you know, the Dodo that leaves a lot of these old legacy institutions in power. And it's uh, sucks. So my mission was to go and help those early stage companies, great product leaders and, and folks like that to get uh, out to market and to make sure that they weren't being their own barrier to entry by people, number one, not knowing about them. And two, not understanding the value that they can bring a lot of times. So I, I live in the the business to business sales world, right? So we're usually selling SaaS or technology related products that are tied to somewhat complicated infrastructure, you know, whether it's IT or telecom or cybersecurity or, you know, enterprise resource planning systems, uh, CRM, like customer management systems. A lot of those generally, you know, making changes within those, that ecosystem requires some complexity. And so when you're trying to sell these offerings, it's hard to distill the concept of all the things you can do into like bite-sized consumable uh, sound bites for people. And so a lot of those marketers get in their own way. Anyway, so I've, I've made it my mission to kind of create um, a fractionalized version of what we would call the chief revenue officer within those firms. I operated with within five startups in five years. So a little volatile, right? And I always did my job really well. I feel good about my track record there as a, you know, as a sales and marketing leader, as a VP of sales or, or CRO. But uh, it was always, the challenge was that, you know, I mean, you never know for one, right? Like you can do everything right and still fail. And people, you gotta not take failure personally for one, but also you can, things can, Trying to put all your eggs in one basket can be daunting. And I got burned out after five years of that and decided to sort of uh, start consulting as a way to find my next job back in 2018. And I had three companies that I thought were really good. But before I was like committed to any of them full time, I, I started working for each of them part time and realized after a few months that there was a lot more value in that, namely that I could bring value to the table quickly. And because I was fractionalized, it wasn't the full, you know, full-fledged executive, a, a CRO, at least here where I'm at in Utah, this valley, you're going to be, you know, 250 plus, like for a salary for that type of person. Um, and of course, you can you can go lower with incentives and equity and, and other early stage, like, hey, you know, we're starting out, so we can only pay you 120, we go from there. But even then, you know, you're, you're 10, 15, 20,000 dollars a month in burn to get a team set up and the executive resource is super necessary, but it's also in and of itself is not the productive resource, right? It's like, it's like kind of like the, uh, it's like the frame of your vehicle, but it's not necessarily the engine. You need all the other parts to make it function. Um, and so an executive resource is something that I think should be consumed fractionally early on. And that's sort of what I discovered in this process. I was able to move quickly, implement in short, small phases because we're only spending, you know, seven to 15, maybe hours a week on each of these companies. And they were all getting traction. They were like, we were creating value. It was a lot, there was a lot less burden because it was like, I don't know, part is that I'm third party, right? I'm not necessarily, I'm not, I'm not an employee of the company. 
So somehow my words mean different things when I say them as an employee versus a contractor. And two, uh, I'm not being paid a full-time salary. Therefore, there's not this like, ah, oh, we're spending all this money. We need to get all this money back. There's not that like pressure that I think a lot of people get sucked into when you're dealing with big salaries and, you know, costly spend, like ad spend and teams and all the things that come with like growth. And as a startup, what I got really good at was, was organic growth, right? Basically the theme of your podcast, right? Zero, zero dollar startup. It's uh, how, how do we get as far as we can with organic resources and a lot of that's goodwill, right? It's like who you know, uh, it's people you can influence. It's it's value you can offer to people that doesn't have a dollar amount attached to it. And so you start playing that game, and all of a sudden you can you can get a lot further. And I was able to do that for several companies at the same time. And then I realized that like, hey, this is the way to go. So I basically turned it into a consulting company. Consulting sounds like you're getting paid for advice, which I don't like. I don't like that concept. Um, so I use my last name, I V I V I E, as the as the name for our Ivy League consulting, because I thought it was kind of a, I mean, I had to do it, but also it was kind of double play on words that it's we're not this academic like uh, group of people coming in with all these great ideas. Like, hey, we have we do have great ideas. Don't get me wrong, but ideas aren't what create value, in my opinion. Value is created through execution, right? Even decent ideas executed well can yield a lot better results than the best ideas in the world that people just sit around and talk about. It's all about action. So we kind of created this acronym, cheesy as it might be, uh, for Ivy League. And it was like our operating principles, which are integrity, value focus, uh, iteration, and execution. The first two were like, this is how we're going to do business. And the last two were like, these are the way we do business uh, that differentiate us from just giving out cool advice. And to me, that's you got to test things, you got to try stuff, and you don't necessarily have to spend money to try stuff. You just have to use your own brain and like put in your own sweat resources, and you can get a lot further with with some of those things than spending money because it's easy to spend money, right? It's hard to know what the re, what the return is going to be. Um, however, when you just use your own organic resources, you can get a lot. You can gauge what you're getting back a lot more quickly. And with a lot less stress and therefore you can be a little more objective because hey if i put a, a couple hours into meeting with people in the industry and the worst i get is just some you know some feedback that puts me back at the drawing board that's you know that's not but if we spend ten thousand dollars when we only got a hundred uh and we get nothing in return that's a crisis right for a startup a lot of times so anyway so i got in that business that way we've been doing it about five years we've worked with probably uh we worked with a hundred. We worked with over a hundred companies in in terms of advisory and support and helping them raise money. But as clients, we've probably only had about um, eighteen of those to date, and twenty if we count stuff we're doing this year. So not too many that we've directly worked for on retainer. I love this, brother. I want to talk a little bit about what you just shared. There's a couple things that I want to um, go back over here because really, really good points. Uh, first thing I want to share that I think is interesting about what John taught, and I agree with him completely on, is this idea that uh, people often use money as almost like a Band-Aid. Um, for example, let's say somebody has an idea, and it could be a multi-million dollar idea, but if it's not executed correctly, then uh, it'll fall flat on its face, right? And uh, a lot of times what 
that failure is covered up with is venture capital or private equity. So let's say that a company is uh, raising money, they raise a million dollars and so they've got a million dollars in the bank. And what that can do is blind the founders potentially to mistakes that can be made because if there's a problem, they can just throw money at it, right? Because it's it's honestly, it's somebody else's cash, right? The investors definitely want to return, but they're not as conscientious about the outcome or, or I shouldn't say they as a generalization. Um, sometimes they are not as careful as they should be because um, it's not it's not really their their money, right? It's money that was put into the deal uh, to be able to help them grow. And when people are growing organically, they're more conscientious of the outcome, right? Uh, and it, it forces them to be more creative in revenue generation in a business when they are starting in a bootstrapped type model. And it doesn't mean that one is better than the other, but one definitely is more conducive to creativity because it has to be, right? When when you've got a bunch of money in the account that's venture funded or from private equity, it's like, oh, we should just run ads, right? Throw some at Instagram and Facebook and uh, put some on YouTube and whatever, and let's just see what works. Uh, we'll throw mud at the wall and whatever sticks we'll keep doing. Whereas Bootstrap, it's got it's got to be like, okay, where can we build relationships and how can we network, which is something that you and your wife do very, very well. Notice that for years, you guys are very, very good on the organic side of things, right? kind of the bootstrapped model. Um, and so I thought that was a, a great point that you made. Sometimes the money behind a particular business model or idea can be um, paradoxically crippling, right? Like, honestly, it's, it's kind of, you'd think like a bunch of money behind something is going to just like make it explode, but it could be something that could really cause problems. Uh, what are your thoughts about even, that? Even sequentially, like uh, what you're saying, I think it's, it's, you're right. It's not bad to take money necessarily, but if you are good at organic growth, if you understand how to, how to bootstrap and move forward, the venture money is going to be more useful to you, right? Money's just leverage. Like that's really all it gives you. It's, it's a, it's a way to engage your market. And, and and present value because that's the real name of the game when I when I say value focus is one of our core principles like I always say this to customers like what is our what is the purpose of your business and if you ask yourself that you know without getting into like the why and like the the existential reasons for why you started it I mean like what is the purpose of a business well it's to provide services and goods and well at the end of the day it's really just to provide value that's the that's the core component of your business so that's how I always look at it so if we're going to pr provide value to a market. We have to, the, the money's just a byproduct. It's a good way to measure how well we're doing at that. Um, but it can also lead us into a false sense of security. It can also make us feel like we're doing great when maybe we're not. We're just we've tapped into a, a group of people that will pay us and now we're exploiting them. That's not good either. So we have to find this balance. I find that when you are really good at bootstrapping, you also get really good at leveraging venture capital because now you eat. Number one, you're going to raise the right amount of money, right? If you know how much you need, you're only going to ask for what you need. And it is kind of typical with VCs to kind of give you maybe more than you need because they want to, they want to get more of their return. If, if you're a good bet, they want to put as much into you as they can and add, they want to allocate like a certain amount and that comes with its own constraints. But knowing what you need for the, for the sake of dollars and capital is going to be a lot more apparent once you have bootstrapped and you've gotten as far as you have with 50 bucks and someone gives you 5,000, it's like, oh man, just think of all the things we could do with that. And you don't instantly just go and throw that at the wall to see what sticks. You first go back to your roots and say, okay, well, what did I do with 50? 
how do I scale that to 5,000? And maybe what you were doing at 50 is not scalable, right? Maybe it literally is just like we bought somebody lunch and we were going one-to-one as a founder to a group of people that we knew. And now we need to go into the market. We got to go to trade shows. We got to do other things. How do we apply that same mindset with 5,000? Maybe the $50 version is not scalable. How do we then do that? And if you take that same approach, I find that you are way more conscious about those dollars. And more importantly, this is the bottom line. You, you're better at, at leveraging that money. Like you, you get more return. You get better at doing what your purpose of your business is, which is to, is to present value to a market. And when you do that, you don't need, you don't need to push. You don't need to struggle. You don't need to panic. You just, you, you know, you're good and you, you understand your, what your worth is and what your value is. And things tend to work out a lot more smoothly when you can do that. Um, so yeah, good, good point. Thank you so much. I, uh, uh, love everything that you're sharing. I think it's important, especially for those individuals who are listening to the show right now, who are, uh, just starting their journey on the road, uh, to entrepreneurship or those that have been in entrepreneurship for a longer period of time, right? It's, it's good to recognize kind of the pros and cons to bootstrapping versus, uh, private equity or venture capital, what that could mean, uh, for your business. And so super, super helpful insights. Thank you. One of the things that I thought you mentioned earlier that was very interesting was this idea of, not putting all of your eggs into one basket. And I actually want to dive into this with you for a little bit because what the world is teaching primarily right now, um, and I'm actually a big proponent of this, is like go all in on something, right? Like if you've got something that you want to be good at, figure out how to master it, figure out um, how you can uh, really capitalize on an opportunity if it's something that's viable, right? Or solves a problem in the market. And what you had explained, what I really, really loved, um, especially because there's real really no right answer, right? For someone, you've been able to find a really, really great solution by spreading your uh, time and value across multiple different companies by providing one particular solution, which is basically like a fractional uh, CRO, right? Which is super, super cool. So tell us a little bit about that and and how that came to be. Um, because you said that working part-time instead of full-time, like seven to 15 hours a week was something that was uh, helpful when it came to bandwidth and in, in managing this for different companies. Yeah, no, well, it's incumbent on the, on you to get the most out of a meeting when that's the only time you have in a week. Right. Yeah. It's like, we only have some hours. We're not here for 40 hours and then just filling up those 40 hours with things. We only have these seven or five hours or whatever they are. And so every one of those hours is filled with intentional, you know, like project forward moving type uh, objective moving endeavors, right? That's the time and energy we're putting in is, is, is uh, critical to those things. And we're not going in circles about a million other things. Like, well, we got 40 hours. When you have 40 hours, you feel like you have forever. And it's weird how you can get nothing done. But when you're limited on time, similarly to when you're limited on cash, you get a little bit more creative and, and have to focus a little harder. Uh, but in terms of what you said about uh, going all in versus like m- maybe not putting your eggs in one basket, I think there's there's two concepts there, and and they're both right because these are not mutually exclusive to one another. You can go yeah. all in and still diversify, right? Diversification is just about spreading out your risk in different areas, okay? And there is a time to go 
like absolutely all in and, and concentrate all the risk in one place. I totally get that. Like mortgage the house, sell all of our assets, go all in on this business that we hundred percent believe in. Like there's a time for that, but you know, when that time is right. Most of the time, it doesn't make sense to take unnecessary risks. Right. And that's when you diversify. So I think for a lot of people that looks different to different people, um, which is you know, okay for some too. that might be right. Like that's it's exactly. okay that it is different for different. They are. I love what you said. Like they're not, they're not mutually exclusive, right? It's not like some correct. You have to choose one or the other. Yeah, and and you can you can slowly dial it up. Just so you don't have to go all in right away. Um, and and it's not like a, it's not a barrier to entry for you to be successful. To only be, I'll only be successful when I'm like a hundred hours a week on my business. Like well. That's not true. And if it is, you probably should find something else to, to concentrate on that's less because that's just going to stress you out, it seems like. Um, and just for my sake, like, is most of your audience, what would you say? Are they are they uh, B2C companies? Like, are they direct to consumer? Or are they selling business to business? It's kind of a mix. The audience uh, here is probably individuals that are entrepreneurial, individuals that are wanting to understand business, um, just principles of life to be successful. Great. Yeah. I just, I don't want to like impose my like B2B SaaS worldview onto people. Oh, I love this. Everything you're sharing is so great. uh, That doesn't have them any value. So I just want to be conscious of that. But um, so looking at it that way, again, for a lot of people, what diversification looks like is, you know, don't quit your day job kind of thing Um, or, or have a stable income. A lot of people, what they'll do is they work that day job, they buy some real estate, they they acquire assets that pay them, you know, uh, passively every month. And they get to a place where they're like, okay, we're, we can eat ramen and live off of, you know, 3,500 bucks a month, cover our mortgages. You know, we got some, we got some, uh, some rental income coming in. We're going to sell, we're going to go down to one car. We're going to have, you know, we're going to move into the smaller house and rent out the bigger house, whatever. So there's, there's that version of it. And sometimes it is like, okay, I'm just going to work this day job until I can, until I know that my thing's in a place where I can start paying myself. That's the other problem too, right? Is it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? Cause you want to take it seriously. You want to be like hundred percent in your business, but same time, if you have to pay yourself, when that money could be being invested in your business, sometimes that capital is worth more than the time that it takes for you to go and maybe work a part-time job. Or, I mean, for a lot of people, let's be honest, even a full-time job, if they're working remotely uh, as an account manager or like in sales or something, you know, especially in the tech world, they're probably only working about half the time anyway. So you can still do your side hustle when you're at work. Like, let's be honest. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of people who just like, I'm just going to work enough to not get fired so I can keep working on my side hustle. Like, whatever you got to do, man, no judgment for me. I'm just saying there's a way to to diversify and and spread that risk out a little bit while at the same time not, um, not saying I'm not going to take my business seriously because I still do other things. I think when it gets the opposite way is when you're doing like seven or eight different businesses, just in case one of them doesn't work out, maybe pick like the top two that you're most excited about and stick with those. Um, but ultimately, yeah, it's like, once you know something's working, go all in. And and that's when, that's the time to take that risk. 
Yeah, great points. Um, I I love that. I think that's super important. And uh, I hope people are kind of taking note. It is good to diversify and understand. And I, I actually agree with that point too. Once you figured out something that is working, then double down on it. Um, but just like investing goes, right? You kind of dollar cost average into either the S&P 500 every month or into crypto, or you could purchase real estate. Yeah. You're diversifying a, across time and assets, figure out what the best option is and to eliminate or mitigate risk wherever you can. And so until you've got something that you feel like is your golden goose, yeah, you can do some experiments and then go all in when you figure it out. I love that. Um, and what what I love about what you guys have done is you've gone all in on the idea of helping companies generate revenue, but diversified by helping different types of businesses do that. So that if if one of them um, isn't doing well, you've got a bunch of other companies that could be doing well, right? Um, the same way that a private equity company may put a bunch of money into deals, recognizing that not all of them are going to be successful. In fact, very few of them will be, but there will be a couple all-stars. And if you're involved with those, then that's a, a great position to be in. So I, I love your guys' exactly. model. I think it's great. Um T tell the the listeners one of the things you said earlier that I thought was really important and a um, just a, a great lesson for people to be able to move from their head down to their heart is this idea of not taking failure personally. You mentioned that right at the beginning of the show. And so in your entrepreneurial journey, journey, have you experienced failures? And if so, how were you able to overcome them and not take them personally and get to where you are today? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing, right? Like people, obviously entrepreneurship gets glamorized, right? Like we all see that we all see the success stories and we all know that there's like hardship along the way and it's all, there's a lot of difficulty, but maybe just consider that the, the failures in terms of like things not working out or, you know, the sequence of events to where you become successful is probably like 10 to one, honestly. That means you're gonna you're gonna have ten failures, not necessarily a failed business, right, or failed venture, but like a failed partnership, uh, a failed, you know, result in a main quest of a, a part of a business where you have to cut that whole thing off and start over. It it, it doesn't mean that the business dies and you start. I'm not saying that kind of failure. Failure isn't isn't in like this rock bottom end game. A lot of times, failure is not rock bottom either. It's just kind of like an ebb that sucks enough to where you question, do I want to keep doing this? Like, is this even worth it? Um, and the way that you know that it is worth it is at the end, like the, the, the one out of those 10, uh, it, it does work out. Right. And it, it makes up for all of those. Okay. Here's a good, here's a good story. Um, so I knew a guy who he'd been working on his company for like a long, long time. It was like 11 years. Okay. And this is pretty common with most startups in this way where it's like the first uh you know 75 percent is like where you make about 20 20 percent of the of the money you're ever going to make in that business and the last 25 percent of that time you spend is where you make the the eight right so i think like that uh Pareto principle what is that called yeah, the Pareto so it, it applies that same way, right? So this guy, 11 years, was struggling away. Meanwhile, he had a brother. His brother had been working at some big company like Cisco or Oracle or something. And his brother like went from entry level, same time this guy started his business, going up to you know being promoted, promoted, promoted. Ended up going to another company and 
about six, seven years in, he was making like 450 or like 500K a year. Awesome salary, right? Like killer money, money that most people, you know, I mean, that's like, that's like 1% of money. Um, well, we'll say it's like top 5%, like in the nation. So really good money. And meanwhile, his brother's like struggling to pay bills, right? They, they, their business actually downside, like they almost lost the whole thing twice. Ended up having to like borrow money from the family to just to get groceries. I was in tons of debt, was literally part, doing a, making a part-time job, just paying one credit card off to the, to the next. I'm like signing up for another zero balance or 0% interest, uh, you know, balance transfer here to there. And like literally a part-time job, just paying off credit cards. Well, years seven through 11, boom, thing takes off. Everything goes super well. You know, he sells, he ends up selling his business for multiple, several millions. I can't remember exactly how much it was, but he did the math. And he said, my brother right now, let's say whatever his salary was there at 500K. He's like, my brother, even if we go back the day I started my business, he would have had to earn 500K a year. And it was like, he'd have to work 180 or 200 years or something to catch up. To what is what he made in that in that end that end game? So he said, "I now look at the time. If I could go back in time and tell myself when I started, hey, listen, all the work you're doing is worth like four million dollars a year. You just don't you just don't get it until eleven years from now, right? Ask yourself that. Would I work for ten years if I knew that for seven of those years I basically was just getting by, barely able to survive, but in year ten I get." you know, $50 million uh, payout, like ask yourself that, like, that's a good way to think of it. And that's how I've always tried to look at it. Um, I mean, in our business, it's a little different because we, we are sort of like you, you alluded to are like a venture portfolio in that each of our clients, like they do pay us on retainer that covers our expenses and our, and, you know, takes care of the salaries. And we have other partners and contractors we pay inside of that. Um, but we also tie ourselves to their success. So ideally, and we haven't been, I'll be honest, I haven't really gotten good at this until the last 18 months where helping companies get the outcomes that we're trying to deal with, like the things we want to see happen. If we're able to get that, we, we try to get a cut. Like we try to figure out what our, you know, what our value is when we get out of that. And again, we've only kind of figured that out the last 18 months, but I did that same math and, and we're getting checks now for work that we've already done, like almost two years ago now, which is great. But if I do the math for when I started, and we've always made pretty decent money, um, but if I, for those first three years, there was that nagging question in the back of my head, man, if I just went and got a job, right? If I just went and made 500K or even 250. Yeah, like even 250, uh, I would be making way more or will would have made way more in those three years than I did first starting in this consulting thing. Um, but number one, I'm probably not employable because it's just too, too much, uh, too much startup life, too many, too, too creative, you know, all, all the other things probably couldn't work for anybody full time anyway, but that standing aside, the money that I would have earned, um, just working, I, I now at this point in year going in year six, I'm much better off. If I spread that out over the time that I've worked versus what I've earned. And again, the money's just a byproduct. The thing that I've got most out of what I do is, is super fulfilling. And that's the other part, right? Like you'll never, 
if you don't know real defeat, you never get to know real victory, right? You, if you live somewhere comfortable, you get paid a really good salary and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there's some people who genuinely find fulfillment. They work in companies and I, I kind of envy them where that company is really good at managing their talent and helping them grow and like, and kind of becoming the best version of their professional self that they could be. That's awesome. I don't think I would be able to get that inside of a company. I already know, at least thus far in my experience, I don't know that there's a company out there that would have allowed me to do the things that I've done, experience the challenges that I, I've experienced and, and overcome and learn and to solve the business problems that we've solved that would give me the perspective and the, the things that I now know. And once you know something, right, you know how to read. I know how to read. You can't look at a word and not know what it says, right? Like once you know how to read, you know how to read. And so you now are a factory in and of yourself. There's nothing that can, that can like take that away from you. So you can lose a job, but you can't lose the experience you have. You can't lose the, the innate ability you have to understand business and value and how to create value and how to, how to build a network. Like those things don't just go away. Uh, you might get less good at them, right? You could become more dull, but at the end of the day, you like, you retain that knowledge and that's, that's the real value to me. And not to go too existential, but you see what I mean? Like you start out, Hey, look, well, I can, I can take all the years that I worked in toil and all the failures combined. And it, it yielded this big result. Um, I, I would say that as cool as that maybe monetary outcome is that, that selling your business or having some big business win, the real result at the end of all that is what you've learned, what you retain, who you are as a person. If you, if you've chosen to, to stick it through and like what you become as a person is always way more valuable because it changes your perspective. And now it's like, it doesn't matter, man. The world could fall apart. We could live in some post-apocalyptic, you know, like Hollywood movie. And we would find a way to still network, to create value, to bring people together. And and the principles would apply outside of there being, uh, you know, dollars to exchange. If it were, we were just bartering for, you know, animal skins and bullets, right? We've, we'd still find a way to create that value. So that to me is what's I think most important. I, I call it personal sovereignty, right? At this point, like you can't kill me, you know, no, we can all lose our jobs. The, the economy could totally burn down. It was just like, we'll find a way, you know? And that to me is worth more than any amount of money. Cause I can money, we can go get money again. Right. Like let's do it how we did it last time. And if that's not available, we'll find a different way to do it. We just present value to a market. We capitalize on it and we rinse and repeat. Right. So anyway, sorry, that was a long tangent, but I think you no, hopefully answered awesome. your question. It was awesome. And we'll, well, I'll end with one question here uh, before we finish up, but I'm so grateful for you, John. Thank you very, very much for being on the show. I wanted to piggyback off of this idea that you've just shared because it's it's hypercritical for people to understand what you just taught. And if we look at um, history, what we find is that people are conditioned to work for somebody else, right? And so that if there were some post-apocalyptic um, catastrophe to happen, a lot of people would not know where to go or how to find solutions or, or how to live. Right. And, uh, I really love what you shared that entrepreneurship offers people, right? It's this idea to be able to be a critical thinker, to be able to find a problem and solve it and recognize that you can create your own economy. It doesn't really matter who the president is, and it doesn't really matter what the economy looks like or, um, what, what's, I mean, what's going to happen, right? This idea is like, okay, I understand principles. Just like you said, once somebody understands 
business principles, they can utilize those principles to be able to kind of riff on and create opportunities with. And that's a that's a ginormous uh, gift, right? For those that are willing to pay the price of entrepreneurship, because like you said, there certainly is um, there, there certainly is a price to becoming an entrepreneur. No one really gets away unscathed, right? You kind of figure things out as you go. And once you figure it out, it gets much easier. But in the beginning, I don't know of one entrepreneur that's found any amount of success that hasn't experienced or drunk deeply from um, a a cup that's that's pretty dang tough, right? Um, everybody yes. everybody goes through things that are like, wow, I that I did not expect that, right? And it, but instead of instead of falling down and being like, all right, I give up, it's I'm gonna get back up and figure out how to um, solve this, right? And it's in those actions yeah. that you're able to get stronger and stronger and. Um, I love what you shared too, right? If you look at the aggregate of what somebody in entrepreneurship experiences in the end game, right? It's this, uh, you end up, it's the compound effect. So as you're learning, it's not everybody, like you says, kind of, they make, they make entrepreneurship sound like it's just this um, very easy, glistening, enchanting thing. It's like, ah, be an entrepreneur and you're going to make tons of money and there's not going to be any problems. And that is the exact opposite of what happens, at least in the beginning. It's like learning how to ride a bike. Um, you're going to, you're going to crash, uh, and, and scuff your knee up on the asphalt, but riding a bike is a lot of fun. And once you figure it out, you'll know how to do it, uh, for a long time. And yes. it's much, much more effective, right. To, to get on the bike and ride it than to read a 300 page book about riding bikes. Uh, it's, it's really, really, every cool. time really cool. Well, thank you. So hey, last question I, uh, wanted to ask you, I'm so grateful for you, brother is I love oh, this shoot. too. You mentioned this earlier in the show and it was profound. It's important. You said value is created through execution. Um, and it's not really found in ideas. And I, I would like you to explain to the audience what you mean by that. I agree. I think ideas are a dime a dozen. Lots of people have ideas, but we find all of these entrepreneurs who have been able to execute. So tell us what you mean when you, when you say that value is created in execution. Yeah. So also want to say one thing is with regard to failure is Please, yeah. feels like failure. Most of the time in the end is actually not when you, when you take that accounting, if you look at the, when you get to what you might claim as relative success, you look back, you're like, actually that wasn't failure. It was just like a down. It was like, it was a down on the way up to the top. Right? I was still down. down. And who cares? Like it's it's also when you have been through it, come to the other side, all this, all the stress and the worry and the things not working out is actually you kind of realize it's sort of fun. Like not a not a great way, but like especially not in the moment, but like you can actually start to enjoy the challenge because you're like, I'm alive, man. Like I could be, I could be just working out of some office somewhere. I'm like alive doing stuff. It feels great. It's fun. Anyway, but yeah, to, to answer your question, um, one of the, uh, I guess the main focus in terms of creating value with execution, because it goes both ways, right? You can, you can execute without a plan all day and you just spin your wheels, right? There's, so there's a caveat to both sides, but you can out execute a bad you can at, out execute bad product, maybe even a bad plan, but you can't out plan success. I mean, you can't uh, out plan for not doing anything, right? You can't just come up with great ideas. Those will not, not go anywhere. And sure, you can spin your wheels trying a bunch of things that don't work because you're bad at planning or because you're bad, you know, you have bad business skills, but those skills can be learned. And guess what? I know a lot of dumb people 
who've been successful and got rich, right? And and when you see that, when you, you have this tendency to go, man, that guy's not smart or skilled or you know, go down the list of what you would think is is a polished, like you know, successful entrepreneur. And like most times, it's not. They just, you know, some of it's yeah, they just got lucky. They had the right people. Yeah, maybe their dad had some money, and their dad helped them along the way, or they inherited part of a business. They just ended up figuring out how to you know take to the next level. So what? The, again, the value you're going to get from from doing it from the ground up and being successful is going to be worth more than any of those other things. It doesn't matter. Like, so start off with that. But secondly, yeah, most of the time it's just people who knew how to do who knew how to do it, right? And skills are worth more than knowledge at the end of the day. Like just being good at stuff and learning to be good at stuff uh, it is way more important than just having really cool ideas or really great strategy, a strategic mind for like, I know how this business is going to go. I'm amazing at building products. That's awesome. But guess what? There's a lot of crappy lesser products out there that are winning over better things because someone didn't know how to market. Someone didn't know how to sell. Absolutely. That's so such a execute. Good point. Yeah. It's a really, really good point. We could take, um, take McDonald's uh, as an example, which is just to kind of drive this point home. They do not, uh, they, I don't think I could ever ask anybody in the world, like who makes the very best cheeseburger you've ever tasted. I don't know anyone that'd be like, I love McDonald's cheeseburger better than any ma and pa shop or like any homemade burger, but they're, they're a great example of execution really, really well. They don't have the best product, but they know, they know how to execute, right? And they've been able to do it in a way that has been meaningful globally, right? And then, and then you have the other side where you may have a ma and pa shop who does have the best burger. They have the very, very best cheeseburger out there. They've got some secret sauce that's been in the family for years. They've got the best Angus cut right whatever it is like just the, the very very best burger that you could ever eat but they'll they'll stay a a one kind of stop shop because execution is tough right they don't know how to franchise or how to grow the model or scale in any way and so what you've said is super super interesting and important for people to to learn that value is is really created through being willing to to execute thank you so much for being on the show today john this has been uh, very, very helpful and insightful for listeners. I'm so grateful that you were uh, willing to to share your your knowledge and expertise, my friend. Thank you a million times. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hopefully, hopefully it was worth it. <laughs> oh, it was it was incredible, brother. Thank you very, very much.